0: Please turn to the Old Testament, to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the text for this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares, and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger, My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. We go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the warnings that you give us in your word. The regular reminders that we so, so need. Father, we need to remember that you are the great and the awesome God. That it is a terrifying thing to fall into your hands. And Father, we pray that we, your people, would not become complacent. That you call your people to worship. And we pray that we might come with hearts ready, with hearts prepared, with humble and teachable hearts. That we might not only hear, but that we would listen. That we would obey. Father, we pray that we would cling to Jesus Christ, who indeed is our hope for forgiveness. And Father, we pray that if any are here who do not know you, we pray, Father, for your Holy Spirit's mighty work to transform hearts and lives. And Father, we pray and thanks for your patience with us, much needed patience. We pray, Father, that your Son, Jesus Christ, will be exalted and that your servant will be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. As you think back to this past year or so, perhaps you've given some thought to the effect of the pandemic, the shelter in place on our culture, regarding how it affects our interactions with people, our social activity. Perhaps also you're thinking back to this period, even in our state, where from about mid-March of last year until about the early, uh, early July, that we, we did not meet for worship. And this would have been significant. Back then, it was, uh, we're going to flatten the curve. That was the desire. We're going to flatten this curve. And we thought, okay, we could shelter in place, not meet for worship for, you know, a week or three, but it extended out. And you think about how the pandemic has affected our social interactions with people. But have you ever thought about how it's affected our view about worship? Our view about our God? There's a term for this. It's called pajama Christianity. Pajama Christianity. It coins the concept rather well. Because when you think about... Uh, At work, you can have a go-to-work-in-your-pajama day. And that has an effect on the type of work and how you approach your work. And we often will need this reminder, not only during a pandemic or the response to a pandemic, but we also need this reminder regularly as God's people, that it is a great thing to come into God's special presence. The church of God has never, ever, ever referred to a building. There is nothing sacred about a building. There is nothing sacred about a building even set aside for worship. What's sacred is the gathering of God's people, the calling of God's people into a special presence that we might worship Him. And that we need regular reminders about how solemn this is. When God calls us into a special presence by his word. That we have that in Psalm 65. And there is that reminder even there. How blessed it is to be one who is called into God's presence. That we might dwell in his temple. That it is a privilege to come to worship God. That just because God is gracious and receives sinners does not mean that we should ever look upon His call to worship as somehow just a, a flippant thing. When we think about this book of Ecclesiastes, we're talking about life under the sun, living under the curse due to the fall, the fall of Adam and Eve. That living under the sun, under the solar sun... And living under the curse of the fall, but not under the authority of the Son of God. That ultimately, the author of Ecclesiastes is pointing out that there's a limit to what man can do and understand. That if we look only at what we observe, what we see, we look only at life under the sun, it's going to be empty, there will be vanity. And he talked about various forms of vanity. He talks about vanity of wisdom. That wisdom, human wisdom, can only amount to to headaches and pain. And greater knowledge comes greater sorrow. Then he talks about work. Ultimately, what are we working for? We work to have wealth. We work to have wealth that we can't take with us wherever we go. Whether heaven or hell, it's not coming with us. And in the last chapter... Ecclesiastes chapter 4, we talk about injustices. And then, with injustices, there is also isolation. Isolation due to not seeing the importance of investing in relationships and people uh, being left alone and without others to care for them and support them. And here, perhaps, the author is saying, wait a minute, there is vanity. And perhaps someone has in mind, but you know what? There's one thing that's not vanity. Whenever I come into God's presence to worship Him, my heart is always right. And there's never vanity. Are you saying that for yourself? If there's anything that I can do right, that is worship God. And I never need to think about my heart and my attitude when I come into God's presence. If you're saying that, you've already lost. You've already lost. You need to be saying any time I come into God's special presence, I should be examining my heart. Not once, not twice, 3 times. Am I coming to criticize? Am I coming to complain to God about what he has done in his world? Remember, God has made all things beautiful in their time. If I'm coming to call that into question, God, your sovereignty is wrong. Your sovereignty is flawed. You've come to the wrong place. We need to come with hearts prepared to worship. God, I don't fully understand. Teach me your ways. Teach me your perfection. Don't let me just complain about what's wrong with your church, what's wrong with society, what's wrong with everything else. Even in, my, even in my worship, yes, our worship, it is flawed. And we need regular reminders of who God is and who we are. God is in heaven and you are on the earth. We need that that reminder all the time. Are we having to combat a fixing, a fixing a correction of this pajama Christianity? If it is true in your life, it's true in mine, then let's do it. We need to correct it. We need to root it out. And so we see in this passage the truth. God is a consuming fire. So be humble in heart and careful in your speech as you worship Him. God is a consuming fire. So be humble in heart and careful in your speech as you worship him. We'll look at this in two simple points. The first is caution in your approach to God. And second, commitment in your word to God. So the first point, caution in your approach to God. We have this in verses 1 through 3. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen to rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, and you are on earth. So let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares, and many words mark the speech of a fool. Here, the author begins with the feet. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Perhaps the question we need to ask is, just who do you think you are approaching? Just who do you think you're approaching? Think for a moment about the God of Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, Moses there was seeing this bush that was burning, but it wasn't consumed, and he was, he was, he was marveling. What, what is this? I need to go see it. And then there was the warning, the voice that spoke, Moses, take off your shoes for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And then after that, after Moses received his commission, we're told that God was ready to strike him dead because his son had not been circumcised and his wife, Zipporah, circumcised him. Our God is serious about obedience. Then we have the God who killed Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron. Here, we think about the importance of the regulative principle of worship. That regulative principle of worship addresses the concept, do what God has commanded in Scripture for worship. Or do what God has commanded and shows examples of in Scripture and worship. Don't do what you make up. Don't think because God has not forbidden it, I'm able to do it. And you see how serious this was. Nadab and Mabihu said, hey, God didn't command this fire, but we're going to offer it because we have creative ideas We're we're intelligent, we can think for ourselves. And wham! The fire consumed them. Strange fire. Think about the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Numbers chapter 16, you have the rebellion of Korah. Of Dathan and Abiram, they question hey, Moses and Aaron you think you're the only ones who can rule, we can rule and then God says hey, why don't you uh, separate them, you know, stand, stand back from them and then you have this sight of the ground opening up and swallowing them alive, them and their households think for a moment about swallowing them up I mean, think about the is that the Star Wars series, a sarlacc, hole in the ground, giant mouth, or whatever it is, and maybe it's just an earthquake, an earthquake, that there's, there's a giant crack, and, and they're consumed. And then, some of you might say, well, hey, that's, you know, that's all Old Testament, we have a New Testament God, he's different. No, is he different? He's not different, he's the same God, yesterday, today, and forever. You look at Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, hey, This was no minor matter lying to the Holy Spirit. They could have sold their property. And they could have changed the word. Not all, but some. We sold our property and gave some of it for the church, or for for the work of God. It's no minor word, all versus some. That's a big difference. Cost them their lives. That they lied to the Holy Spirit, stricken dead. So just who do you think you're approaching when you come into God's special presence That these reminders are frequently needed. When you think about God, we understand that God is a God of compassion and mercy. Yet He is also the God of wrath and of justice at the same time. Our God is is a God of all goodness. That is true. But yet, He is also the God of greatness. Our God occupies... The throne of grace. We're told to come boldly to that throne of grace. Yet, at the same time, our God occupies the throne of majesty. That we refer to him as a father, that we are his children by faith. But you must also remember that as a sinner, he is yet also your judge. So he's your father, and you are his child by faith, but yet, as a sinner, you also answer to him as the judge. In First Chronicles 29:11, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. His greatness, His power, His glory, His victory, His majesty. All of those things we must keep in mind when we come into God's special presence. When we, God, by His Word, calls us into His worship. And we worship Him. Here's this warning in the second part of verse 1. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know they do wrong. When you think about the temple, you think about the Jewish temple... There are two main functions that went on in the temple. The first was instruction. Malachi 2 talked about how the priests, that they had a responsibility, and that was to instruct God's people in His Word. To instruct God's people in His Word. To teach His holy laws to His people. So that you and I, when we come... We must come ready to receive instruction. We must be ready to listen. We must be ready to listen rather than to voice our own opinions. We can think about all the things that have to improve in Christ's church. And I I will start with me. That I'm the one who needs to grow and improve and to be sanctified. And you can talk about all the other things in church that are inferior or not up to the world standards or whatever you want. Have you ever come with a, a massive list of all the things that you don't like about church, or you don't like about uh, the worship of God, and, and God and His Word, and all the things that seem questionable to you uh, regarding the, the world standards? Again, you've already lost. Burn that list. Burn that list. The second thing that the temple was for was mediation. So, instruction. The priests were instructing God's people. And then, the priests were doing the work of mediation. The priestly offering of sacrifices on behalf of men to God. So, the priests were representatives. They they represented men to God. See, the, the prophets were different. They represented God to man. The priests represent men to God. They present these sacrifices and offer them on behalf of the people. That's why they were those who were supposed to say to the people, Hey listen, you've you've brought me a crippled sacrifice, I cannot offer that. And don't think for a moment that our God would be pleased with it, because even your governor would not be pleased with it. So, go back, get another offering, a perfect offering. So also, the instruction that goes on, regarding our hearts, a right attitude to God. Here, the warning is about the sacrifice of fools. And a fool is one who says there is no God. Or a fool is one who thinks lowly of the true and the living God. But there's false confidence in the part of the fool about petty sacrifices. Fools think that petty gods are appeased or bought off with petty offerings. A fool thinks... Simple men approach God from a transactional perspective. You understand this, transactional perspective. Tit for tat, Quid pro quo. God, I give you this, and you give me that. I show up here because I've given up my time. It was a beautiful day outside. I could have been golfing. could have been outside spending time with my family. And I gave that up to come here. If you're thinking that way, again, you're, you're already lost. You're already gone. It's not the fact that you've showed up here that is of any merit before God. It has everything to do with what's in your heart. How have you come? Have you come begrudgingly? No good. We come humbly, ready to listen, ready to obey. Psalm 49, verses 7 through 9. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever. That he should live on eternally. That he should not undergo decay. The petty gods, petty sacrifice. The true and the living God, the God we worship, is not a petty God at all. He cannot take, he doesn't take credit he doesn't deal in U.S. dollars or the Chinese renminbi. No, no, he doesn't care about that. There's, there's, no, there's no currency that he takes that can please him. It's as if God needed anything from man. God didn't create man because somehow he was lacking. Oh, no, I, I, I'm, I'm lacking, so I need to create man so I can, I can feel worthwhile. No, that's not why God created man. We think about the instruction in the temple, the two functions, instruction and mediation. And you think about what Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. And then you find everything that the temple was pointing to found in Jesus Christ. He is the prophet who gives us fine instruction. That in Him is the only worthy sacrifice that was ever needed. So when you think about instruction from Jesus and mediation, who is our perfect high priest, then for God, He's giving to man His Son. And He had said, listen to Him. Listen to Him believe upon him obey his word with him i am well pleased so if if god is saying here here is worship that is valuable it begins with accepting the one that i've given to you jesus christ who is worthy that jesus says that he is true life that his blood is true drink That you and I ought to believe upon Him. When He says the testimony is, All men have sinned and fallen short of His glory. The answer is, Yes Lord. That means me. Not just the guy next to me. Not just the woman behind me. No, that means every one of us. Fallen in sin. Short of the glory of God. We ought to believe His testimony about us. And that we ought to embrace His promises in Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of sins. And hear it in verse 1. Go near to listen. In the English, we have a distinction between hearing and listening. And here, the translation, listen, is appropriate because we ought not to have hearing go in one ear and out the other. And you think about James... James 1.25, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So, we can hear, in one ear, out the other, right? You, children, have you tried this? Shine a flashlight through one ear? Is, is light going to come out the, the other ear? Give it a try. See if it works. Try, try it on your sibling. See if that works. But here, oftentimes words go in. And they come out as if there's light passing through. And we ought not to be these forgetful hearers. We ought to be the, the one who is an effectual doer. That's what it means to listen. Is that we're changed by the word. We submit to the word. We obey the word. We honor the word. And that is what, that is what listening means. It's not just that, we, that we're hearing the word. That the Jews often boasted that they were those who heard the word. There's no boast there. It's only greater condemnation to, to hear the word and not do it. And you can think about all the reasons why people want to hear the word. Did you know that back, back in history... Back in history was it Constantine. It was in the 2nd or 3rd century. And he was a ruler... He was a, a Roman Emperor that he was actually, I don't know what the answer is, he claimed to be a Christian and that uh, there were kings like him and throughout history who, who would call councils, church councils, and these kings would be present to hear the debates that went on when, when men in the church got together to come up with confessions and catechisms. And they hear the debates and the issues going on. The, the, the distinction between one letter, I. Was it the, the homoousius or homoousius? That of the same substance, is Jesus of the same substance as the Father or a similar substance? And then you think back throughout history that, that theology of all the sciences was considered queen. It was the queen of the science. It mean, it's superior to physics, superior to math. That, that, that the intelligent man would, would go and study theology, because it's the queen of sciences. So so these kings, whether converted or not, they were present. They wanted to hear these things. You think about all the types of people who come in. Well, well, I've studied all these books. I've studied the, the Bible from from cover to cover, back and forth, in either way, and I, I know all these things. But are you a doer of the word? Do you believe upon Jesus Christ? That is what is valuable. That This is what God is pleased with. That we would not be hearers only. Or hearers and debaters. Those who can dabble in theology. Those who can dabble in the church. But rather are you one who obeys the word of God humbly? We're told here in the end of verse 1. Fools don't even know that they are doing wrong. They're committing sin. Here, this is an urgent plea for humility before God. Our feet are too quick to rush into the presence of God. Verse 2, do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart. Going back again to James chapter 1, verse 19, know this, my beloved brother... Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. This is true in dealing with men. How much more so is true in dealing with God? Slow to speak, quick to hear, slow to anger. Think for a moment about meeting your mayor. And if your mayor wanted to meet with you, gave you a call. Hey, Al. Hey, Sally. I would like to meet with you this date, this time. Or your governor, Governor Tim Waltz, or the president, President Joe Biden, if any of these men wanted to meet with you, would you go? Should you go? Would you be honored to go? Now, we have to make a distinction between the person and the office. God requires us to show due honor to the office. And that even means that we show respect to the person also. Doesn't mean we have to agree with everything that they stand for. But it does mean that we understand our proper place. If there's any authority it has been given by God, Romans 13. So, first off, if you had plans, when he says, I'd like to meet you at this date, this time, if you had plans... Would you cancel them? That if you were supposed to wash your hair that night, or, you know, if you were going to go work out at the gym, I think it would be a good idea to cancel those plans and see to it that you're present with your mayor, your governor, your president. They said 11.30 in the morning. Would you show up at 11.45? No, I don't think you should. You show at eleven thirty-five. You should be early, lest something happen. And so also, even, even in coming to church, would you be, would you be concerned if you were going to the mayor's office if you showed up late? I would hope so. It might be seen as some form of disrespect. So also. Think about how often it is in our lives that we, we think seem to think that we could come so easily and so flippantly, so casually. Think about my own life, that in various phases, see, like going through college, maybe the post-college, how flippantly I thought about that. Coming to worship a few minutes late or whatnot. It's not a minor thing. We, where we consider our attitude when we approach our God, In verse 2, we're told that God is in heaven and you are on earth. Well, what is he, what is he trying to say? Is he saying that God is only in heaven? Oh, we know that we're on the earth. But I thought God is everywhere. Isn't God omnipresent? He is omnipresent. But that's not the point. That's not the point that the author is trying to make. To say that God is in heaven is not saying that God is not on the earth. The author is making a comparison. God is in the heaven, and you are on the earth. Meaning that He is high, so far above you. This is like Isaiah 55. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so so high are His ways above our ways. It's a comparison of how much greater God is than us. And so quickly, we forget that. We forget that that all the nations, were told, are but a drop in the bucket. That, you think about how we would be compared to a worm, compared to God. Yet, He is mindful of us, that by His grace He is concerned about us, it. not because of some inherent value in us, but because God delighted in man that he delights to save man, he delights to care for man, and that's because of his mercy and his grace. So here, let our words be few. God is in heaven. You and I are on the earth. Our words ought to be few. We should not come with criticisms about God and his ways and his order and his government. We should be come with humble heart. We should come with humble hearts, ready to be taught. By his word. We ought to be careful about a casualness. This casualness, this flippantness... To come into God's special presence. Remember... That it is a privilege... To come before God. We heard earlier... In the call to worship... From Psalm 65 verse 4. How blessed is the one... Whom you choose to bring near to you. To dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house. Your holy temple. How satisfied you are in God's house. Depends upon how blessed you think you are. To be called into his courts. If you think it's no big deal. The free offer of the gospel. It goes to everyone. It's not a big deal. Oh. You ought to consider the cost. The cost to God. We think about cost in terms of material things. You know how long it took me to earn that? Everything, that? everything in this world belongs to God. Those aren't the costs. The cost is His Son. So that we might be clean. That we might be able to come into His presence to worship Him. It's a blessing. To be chosen... And to be brought near to dwell in God's special presence. Many words mark the speech of a fool. So this statement in verse 3. A dream comes when there are many cares. I think he's describing a pattern. If you have all kinds of worries. If you're you're hampered with all kinds of busyness. We're told that when you sleep you're going to have some elaborate dreams. And similarly to that. Many words mark the speech of a fool. So that, when you think about fools, we read earlier in Proverbs 17, 18, that a fool delights in airing his own opinion. But there's that warning there. Proverbs 17, 28, Even a fool who keeps silence is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Children, I well, want you to listen up to this funny story. It's a funny story. So, I was married, and shortly after, I was sent off to Japan with my company. I had switched from one division in my in my work to a different division, where the experience I had in the first division did not transfer over. There, there was no similarity between the two jobs. And that second job that I had within the company, I had only worked about Six months in it. And people can work 10 years working in that field and still know very little about that. So there I was sent off to Japan. I don't know why the company sent me there. They needed a warm body. So I went there. And for the Japanese, meeting the customers, very important. Introductions. Humility, very important. And my Japanese-American friend warned me, say, Frank, I'm gonna warn you, please heed it. When you go meet the customer, greet them. Be courteous. But don't say anything about your accomplishments and your wisdom, because they're going to school you. And I said, I got it. I got it. I've only been doing this for six months. So I went there. There was someone else, an older man, who was the first tragedy. And I watched him. And he started talking. And he, he talked about all these things that he did. And I still remember his name, bito san started scolding him and before you know it after a few minutes the man could not say any anymore because Bito-san had cut him off in so many areas oh are you're telling me this, this, this and, and, and he was stuck he didn't have anything to say except that he was caught as a fool and then the next day when I got my introduction I looked at Bito-san he said Bito-san it's a pleasure to meet you and I smiled and he was hesitant first and he waited And I continued to smile. And then he smiled because he realized I wasn't going to open my mouth and tell him about my accomplishments. And then there he had, there was a relationship. Hey, this man's smart enough to keep his mouth shut in my presence. He learned from yesterday what happened to the previous guy. But you realize that our God is far, far greater even than our customer. Our God is one in whom when we come into his presence... We should have our mouths shut. We should be ready to listen. Because his words are eternal life. His words mean the difference between life and death. Do not think that you could dismiss his instructions and live. How often is it children? Your parents tell you, Okay, do this. And you think, No, I don't need to follow that. I'm going to do this instead. You've told me this. I'm going to do that. You think... You can disobey your God and live. Do you think that somehow part of the Christian life is we learn about what's really important and what's not so important in God's word? Oh, don't don't think that way. It's all important. We need to heed. We need to heed the almighty God. The one who created us. The one who bought us by his blood. So this is the first point. Caution in your approach to God. We have the second point, commitment in your word to God, in verses 4 through 7. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. Here is instructions about a vow. From verse 4, When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. Here, we ought to understand the purpose of vows. That we take vows. These are these free will vows. You're not required to take certain vows. But if you do, you need to be careful to follow through on it. Completely. Quickly. Vows that we take must not obligate us to sin. And if ever you take a vow that obligates you to sin, it never makes that sin no longer a sin. It's still sin. When, we're, when we are brought, when it's brought to our attention that we vowed something as sin, we should repent. We should not fulfill that vow. You think about even something like uh, the uh, the vows that obligate us to sin never makes it acceptable. The content of these vows that we take must be must have a clear warrant in Scripture. They must be something of weighty importance, something that is obtainable, something that we can do. So a clear warrant means that's something that's right for us to do. Young people, young people, do not do not hamper your path with anything such as vows of chastity. Vows of, of uh, sorry, vows of chastity are good. Vows of celibacy, no, don't do that. Don't do that. So, if God has said you're free to marry, then you are free to marry. Don't complicate it by saying I will vow never to marry. Don't don't do that. Don't do that. It's wrong to do that. If God provides you opportunity to marry a godly Christian man, Christian woman, then you're hampered by this vow. Think about false religions, how they require such things. Not good. In verse 5, it is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. The ignorant are those who think that somehow you need to sweep God off his feet. This, this, is, this is how us Americans think. I, I don't think people of other cultures think this way. Americans, we are accursed with like a horrific memory. We can't remember anything. Even our history. Our history is only two or three hundred years. You look at other nations. Other other countries. Other people groups. The histories go back thousands of years. Have someone come to them. Make these promises. Sweep them up their feet. And they don't fulfill that. They'll remember it for a few thousand years. And here. We need to think this way. We need to think this way. Somehow. In our culture, we want people to feel good. So we make all these promises, and they, don't, can't, they can't remember whether or not they're fulfilled. They're, these politicians come and make all these promises, and they make, people feel good. Oh, I, feel, I felt so good in hearing these things. And no one ever goes back and says, hey, here are your promises. Here are your lack of fulfillment. And this means that you're a liar. No one thinks that way, apparently. They can't remember. They just remember that they felt good. But here God is warning us It is better Not to make a vow Than to make one and not fulfill it So man thinks To make a vow is plus one And then to fulfill it Is plus two God doesn't say that Doesn't, doesn't say that at all A vow made But unfulfilled is a negative It's a, it's a big negative A vow made and fulfilled is a positive. So it's not as if you get some positive, God is pleased if you make a vow, and then He's pleased again when you fulfill that vow. No. Think about it like a volunteer enlistment for your country if there's not a uh, draft, but there is a volunteer enlistment to serve as a soldier. If you volunteer, you're required to serve. If you volunteer and you don't show up, you are in some serious trouble. This is some form of desertion or AWOL, and this is a crime, even in our country. See, we ought to understand here: someone who has not enlisted, he's not required. He's not required to show up. But if you've enlisted, you've taken that vow. Then you're required to go. And so also we ought to think that way about these vows. Verse 6. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. Sometimes people think that vows. Vows are necessary to show that we are committed. May vows not manifest your impulsiveness. People who are impulsive... People who are impulsive tend to do things without much thinking. They tend to take these vows not knowing themselves. There's a certain ignorance about ourselves. And there's a certain impulsiveness. Let your devotion be consistent. Let it be steadfast. And let it be unchanging. That's what's important. When you think about vows, God desires obedience, not sacrifice. So vows cannot be a substitute for the obedience that you're lacking. And vows cannot be a substitute for repentance. There's no coupon situation here. Uh, you have a sin that you like, you don't want to give it up. Well, God, I'm going to vow to do this for you over here. No, it doesn't work like that. If there is some sin that we're committing... The command is that we repent and turn from that sin. That we forsake that sin. We can't vow to do some other kind of service for him. In place of it. When you think about the foolishness of vows. So simply. Imagine a man. Who is surrounded by death. He's in, he's in a battle. Everyone in his unit has been shot and killed or exploded. And even the man who is a vowed Atheist. At that point, he will believe in God. He will. And he's probably going to take some some kind of a vow, foolish vow before God, saying, if you get me out of this battle alive and back to my home and back to my, my family, then I will go to church every day. How many times do you think God has heard that one? And heard it broken? And we're told here, do not be a fool. Don't make vows that you have no intentions on fulfilling. Sometimes people will come back. So that guy would say, Hey, I'm back from. I've lived through only man in my unit who lived. I'm back at home. And he's going to say, Why? Well, I, I vowed to go to church every Sunday, and it's been three years. I've never gone. So he's going to say in verse 6 here, And do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. So he tells the minister at the church, Hey, I, I took this vow. And that minister says, Hey, didn't you vow to do this? And he's going to come back and say, my vow was a mistake. Is this acceptable? Well, you think about it. Is this something he can do? Well, yes, he can do it. It's not sin to go to church. It's not sin to to be present in the worship of God. He ought to do it. He can't can't try to cut himself loose here. If there were something that he's unable to do or sinful to do, he, he must cut himself loose. You think about how God honors those who are faithful to their vows. Psalm 15:4 But those who honor those see in whose eyes a vile person is despised but who honors those who fear the Lord who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Think about how important that is that you make a vow. Conditions change. It's not favorable towards you, becomes costly, becomes difficult to fulfill. But he who swears to his hurt and does not change, that this is pleasing to God. What is the other option? There in the end of verse 6 Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? When we, when we vow things to God and we don't fulfill them, that God is one who judges us. He destroys the work of our hands. Instead of pleasing Him, it's displeasing. And we're told instead to fear God. And then we think about how God does this. What does He do? Does He say, hey, I made this vow, I made this covenant, but it's so painful for me. And sinful man, I'm not going to follow through. He doesn't say that at all. When you think about the covenants that He has made. Even back in the Garden of Eden. That uh, the seed of the woman. And the seed of the serpent. And you think about the promises that God made to Abraham. In Genesis 22. The offering of Isaac. God said in response. Through your seed all the nations of the world will be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. There God was promising that through a seed, through Jesus, that he bound himself by oath. God owns all the material wealth in this world. It's of no value to him. But what's precious to him is his son, Jesus Christ. So did God swear to his own hurt, and he did not change. Indeed, he did. He sent his son to die, and indeed was a costly death. It was costly to him. And so it should be valuable to you and to me. So that when we come, we ought to be reminded, we come worshiping a risen Savior. Jesus who died and is raised again. That the devotion that you and I ought to have, the fear that we ought to have, is coupled with our gratitude. That Jesus alone is the one who is able to save us from our sins. He alone is one who is able to do that work. And that when we think about coming into His presence, we're worshiping the God who alone can save us and heal us. And may you and I reflect on that truth each and every time we come into God's special presence. May we go to our God together in prayer.